You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. And I am here with my amazing co-host, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, Abby. Hey, how are you? Doing good, doing good. We, of course, have Dr. Carrie Vedian from Fertility Center of Las Vegas as well. Hi. I have missed you guys. I mean, no, it hasn't really been all that long, but it kind of feels like forever. It does. It does. For our listeners, we we tend to kind of record for a number of weeks and we we hit summer. And so our lives have been a little... (laughs) A little crazy and busy. And I think Abby just got back from a fun trip, didn't you? Yeah, it was a trip that was postponed for March of 2020. It was to Costa Rica. And so we had just a fabulous time. And we've been there once before, but it's just Costa Rica is so cool because it's like you're in an outdoor zoo. No matter where you are, <laughs> there's animals. It's just everywhere. It was It was just great. It was fabulous. So did you do well, beach or did you do like jungle rainforest or what? Did well, you- really the jungle's kind of everywhere, even if you're at the beach, but we stayed in Manuel Antonio, which is a beach, um, but it had, there's animals just everywhere. And, and when I was just talking about how the animals, it, the funniest thing that happened to us was on our pool deck, there's jungle all around us and we can look way down and see the ocean at our, where our pool deck was. And we saw one of these, it's called a squirrel monkey, a little tiny, cute monkey. And there's, they're Aww. not in very many places. And my husband spotted it. And all of a sudden it was like, if you've ever seen Wizard of Oz, when the squirrel monkeys or the, the monkeys attack, like the flying monkeys, uh-huh. the flying monkeys, it, they were like the flying monkeys because there was one and then there was two. And then the next thing we knew, this woman had a drink with a pineapple in it <laughs> and they just, <laughs> there was at least 40 monkeys all over the pool deck. I mean, it was like, it was like a Disney movie almost because like little girls were screaming and the monkeys were running around. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was very very funny. And there were a couple of little monkeys that had their babies on their backs, and so it was really cute. Oh, I was just looking at a travel kind of living abroad website or something, and I think Costa Rica was like the number two place that they recommended. Amer like if you're an American and you want to live somewhere else, Costa Rica was number two, and it's one of my best friends' like plan. If like she ever decides to leave the U.S., that's where she wants to go practice medicine. It's it's interesting. I, I'm curious as to why I've never been to Costa Rica. It, I think that the God, one of the gods, told us it has has so many different animals and ecosystems, and it's just and it's they're very eco friendly there. Everything's all about recycling, and they won't let you take even. Um, plastic into the Manuel Antonio State Park. And um, it's it's a really nice environment. It's a fairly wealthy nation, I think, as far as Central American countries go. And it's just, it's it's a pretty nice place to hang out overall. <laughs> that sounds awesome. We went to uh, Belize, so right next door, a couple of years ago for a, a big anniversary. And it was a big debate between, do we go to Costa Rica or Belize? And I forget why Belize won out, but it was it was kind of a toss-up. So Costa Rica is high on our list of places to go to one day when we can actually figure out how to get out of here. I think healthcare is pretty good there too, you know. So if you, as you age, it's probably a good place to go. And in fact, I got to meet one of the Costa Rican physicians because he ended up, if you're an American and you're out of the country and you're coming back in, you have to have a COVID test done within three days of getting back into the country. So 
the hotels around there have it arranged where somebody comes right to your hotel room and, you know, they do your nasal swab. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. it was actually a physician who came to our hotel room to do it last Saturday. So um, you had a house call. That's right. I had a house call from a doctor. It was pretty cool. <laughs> so the million dollar question is, you know, no no good deed goes unpunished. No good vacation goes unpunished. When you came back, how high was the list of charts that you had to go through and the stack of uh, emails and all of those things to, to get through? I was in the office for three hours and 45 minutes on the day that yeah. I got back to go through all the stuff that I had to do. Ooh. And I even took a picture of my stack of charts so my family could feel really sorry for me when I got back. Oh my God, that <laughs> oh is Oh my goodness. Yeah. Abby is showing like this rolling cart with all these charts. It's probably almost as tall as she is. Uh-huh. Yeah. There's like no, that's, serious stacks on that cart. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that was, and that one, the email, emails or phone calls. So, you know, you guys know how it goes. It's the same way when you get back too, I'm sure, but mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot. It almost makes you not want to leave because of that. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's go to our question of the day. So our listener asks, um, says, hello, I am a 30-year-old female. I've been trying to conceive for two and a half years. I started seeing a fertility specialist in October 2020 due to irregular cycles. My doctor says it should be an easy fix because he hasn't identified any other issues. I've taken letrozole for five months. I had one miscarriage during letrozole treatment and one miscarriage on my own without medication. My doctor says I responded really well to letrozole and it's only a matter of statistics until I get pregnant. My doctor has start gonadotropin injections instead of letrozole last month and wants me to do one to two more rounds of injections before IVF. Am I doing the right thing? I feel defeated and running out of positive thoughts that I will get pregnant. Thank you for your help. Ladies. So the biggest thing that I heard in there is that she's already been pregnant twice. So the stuff has worked. Yeah, me too. That's what I was thinking. And... Mm -hmm young. And so that's huge. And so the the balance here is kind of that race against time in comparison to emotions because... And, and frustration. It, yeah. And time frustration. and frustration are the two issues. Yeah. Like the, the frustration factor is probably going to be the, one of the biggest things here, because I would say if you keep going, the odds are really good that you're going to get to where you want to be with a small human being. But I also think there's the frustration factor, like doing an injectable cycle is better than doing a plain letrozole cycle, but doesn't hold a candle to IVF. And so what I would say here is, is evaluate what, what your timing is. There is nothing wrong with doing an injectable cycle. There is nothing wrong with going straight to IVF. It's just what is your frustration to cost to patients balance here? There's no question that the quickest route to pregnancy is IVF. But like Carrie was saying, you know, Sometimes if you're patient and you're, you know, if you're only 30 and you've been pregnant twice, there's a pretty good chance. It's kind of like, kind of like the slot machine analogy, Carrie, you pull the, <laughs> pull the lever enough times, you know, it's going to happen. And, you know, the, the chances of you having three miscarriages, boom, 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 are less likely than, you know, just having the two. So pretty good chance if you get pregnant again, it's going to be a healthy pregnancy. But, you know, there is a point, I think, for everybody when you kind of get to that breaking point, you're like, I'm just tired of this. I just want to be pregnant. Um, But if you don't have insurance coverage, it can really hit your pocketbook pretty hard. Kind of my thoughts are, first of all, she didn't mention anything about a recurrent pregnancy loss evaluation. You know, 10 years ago, we usually waited for people to have three miscarriages before doing a recurrent pregnancy loss evaluation, which if you're a new listener, that would generally constitute undergoing 
some blood testing, looking for um, looking at your and your partner's chromosomes, checking for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, making sure your prolactin and thyroid are working fine, and then an evaluation of the lining of the uterus just as a little synopsis. So I would say you definitely should have that done. And I think the data is pretty clear that if you're ovulating on letrozole and getting pregnant, going to gonadotropins isn't going to, that's making you spend more money and increase your risk of higher order multiples. It's not really going to increase your chances of having a successful pregnancy per se. And so, you know, I, if you're not going to go towards IVF and that you have a completely negative evaluation, I, I I don't know if financially the investment in injectables, which probably just doubled or tripled the cost of each of your cycles, is necessarily a wise move. I'd rather you save that extra two or three thousand dollars a month in case you might need to go to IVF or you want to go to IVF and put it towards that. But that's kind of my two cents. What do you all think about those things? Yeah, I think that's legit. I mean, when I was, I just pulled some of the numbers for uh, a lecture for my residents and the the numbers, when you have someone who's been trying for a couple of years and, and has had negative, um, negative pregnancy tests consistently, meaning infertility, um, baseline is about one to 3% per month that she's going to get pregnant with absolutely no treatment. When you add in chloral, uh, when you add in oral medications like clomid or letrozole, that bumps it to roughly four to nine percent. When you add in an insemination, that takes it roughly, you know, ten to fifteen percent. When you add in, in, when you change over from medications to injectables, that takes it to approximately fifteen to eighteen percent. Um, and then when you bump to IVF, you're going at a good center, sixty to seventy percent, especially if your egg count's good and you're young. And so when you look at those numbers, I I agree with Susan that adding adding injectables to someone who's already ovulating is going to actually potentially increase your frustration factor even more because of the uncertainty that it adds. So when you're adding injectables, you're talking about a lot more ultrasounds because we want to avoid you having quadruplets. Like that's a bad look for anybody. And (laughs) and so we have you come in frequently and it doesn't take very much to go just like tiny little dose, tiny little dose, tiny dose. Okay, we're not getting anything. Let's increase increase more and you're getting ultrasounds all the time to make sure that your ovaries aren't exploding. And then it doesn't take very much, oh, I'm really sorry, you have too many, we're putting you at risk. Or you've gone for 20 days at these micro doses and you end up you know, spending a huge amount on cost of ultrasound, cost of medications for really not that much of an increase. So I'm not a huge fan of injectable cycles with mm-hmm. with insemination or timed intercourse because they they scare the pants off me. Okay. Well, and I think a lot of people tend to lean more toward those now if they can't afford IVF. If for some reason they either don't want to do IVF or can't afford it, I think that, that's where I see a lot of my patients going that it's maybe a little bit more effective than Clomid IUI or Fumara IUI. And so that's kind of the next step. But I agree with you. I think if you can afford to do IVF, um, I mean, hands down, it's the most successful therapy. Yeah. And it's also got the better potential for getting you not just your first kid, but if you get multiple embryos, you can potentially come back and have your second one with less drama, higher success rate right off the bat, right. which when you already have a small human being at home, that becomes, you know, not the be all and end all, but it's definitely more important um, because <laughs> you don't... Less free time. Efficient, <laughs> efficiency is important. Efficiency is important. And human reproduction at baseline is one of the least efficient processes out there. I mean, you think about it, 20% chance for a couple that can conceive normally per month 
I mean, if you if you had a worker who worked twenty percent of the time, like you, WTF? What the hell is that? Get out of here! But apparently, the ovaries don't get evicted that quickly. So fine, we keep going with them. (laughs) Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, today we are going to talk about a very important subject called secondary infertility. So, Abby, do you want to tell our listeners what what is secondary infertility? What is this? What does this mean? It means you get pregnant the first time, maybe really quickly and easily, and then you try the second time and it just doesn't work for some reason. What are some of the big causes of secondary infertility? Well, I mean, things things that can damage your fallopian tubes. Um, so like pelvic infections, for example, if you have one of those, it can damage your tubes. If you have um, a condition called endometriosis that can cause inflammation and also scarring of the tubes. Surgeries, if you've had multiple surgeries, that can damage your fallopian tubes. And then obviously there's other things too, like the sperm. Your husband can have some issues that cause secondary infertility. Same thing, things that can cause inflammation, blockage of his sperm. Or, you know, if he has a really low sperm count for some reason, if he has a hormonal issue or some medical condition that makes his sperm count low. And then I guess the other thing would be if you had some sort of scarring inside your uterus or damage to your uterus for some reason that would prevent the sperm and the egg from getting together and implanting. Carrie, what are some other reasons that you can think of that might lead to secondary infertility? So secondary infertility, um, a lot of it is the same stuff that causes primary infertility. Um, It just happens to (laughs) break later. Um, And anything, I mean, I... Or you were lucky the first time around because you were younger. That's that's actually... Yeah, or you're really old now. (laughs) Or older. (laughs) That's actually what I was just thinking in that. If you have, for people who have really low sperm counts, tubes that don't really function all that well, ovaries that don't pop out an egg all the time, you know, miracles happen all the time. Like I, I, on a regular basis, think, holy cow, how does anyone ever get pregnant normally? And and then you factor in some of the things that we see on a regular basis, you know, low sperm counts, crappy tubes, whatever it may be. And random chance still happens. So, you know, uh, and this is, this is kind of a horrible example, but not not entirely. It's the, <laughs> kind of a horrible example. Kind of a horrible example. Like a broken clock is still right twice a day. Like you can still have fluky things happen. And when a fluky thing happens and results in an adorable baby, nobody's going to question it. You're going to just say thank you and move on. And so when you have a first pregnancy that goes easily, and then you get to your second one, you're like, come on, what's going on? It, we've been trying to And, and that's not what Carrie really wanted to say. <laughs> that is in no way what I wanted to say. I clean it up for you. I know this is infertility docs uncensored, but I still have a little level of caution because I'm like, <laughs> I'm still a little censored. Like some of my patients are probably listening to this. I need to not say all of the words that uh, routinely flow through my brain. But the fluky things can happen. And sometimes the fluky thing is that you got pregnant, not that you didn't get pregnant. And so I've had patients come back. Like I just had a guy maybe two months ago who came to see me for a follow-up semen analysis. Well, after his first semen analysis, which was about two, three years ago, I had called him to say, I'm really sorry, sir. Your sperm count is extremely low. Very few of them are moving. Like you are going to need There's IVF. There's no way that you're ever going to get pregnant. There's no. Oh, <laughs> and he's like, my that. partner just had a positive pregnancy yeah, test. Yeah. 
And that's exactly what happened. And so he came again for a second one. And I'm like, well, your sperm still is crappy. And 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 at that point, so, I told him, like, if you want to call me in two weeks and tell me your partner has a positive test, I will be delighted to take that call. Like, you just, you don't, I don't know how you guys feel about the words always or never. Yeah. So I, I never say like, never anymore. <laughs> oh, no. I had, I mean, I had a woman who had blocked, bilateral blocked tubes on surgery that both me and another physician confirmed. Like, we tried several times couldn't get it yeah what does she do she goes to get pregnant on her own the nerve (laughs) Um, but with secondary infertility it's really all the causes of primary infertility and sometimes the things that happened in your initial pregnancy can predispose you towards secondary infertility so um, weight gain is a really nasty little thing that happens if you are prone to anovulation prone to pcos when you what's anovulation not obvious, not popping up an egg every month. Um, and, and oftentimes gaining weight can screw with your insulin and your uh, glucose receptors. And so it throws off that whole system. So what was working on kind of a tenuous track to begin with just gets totally thrown with the pregnancy weight that you gain that can often be very difficult to lose as a uh, living and breathing example of that one. Um, you know, it just, it makes it harder to, to get. And so the first pregnancy was fine. The second one is harder to get and you have to work at it. One thing I'd like to add to that is even if you are ovulating on a regular basis, if you are, if your weight has changed, it can still impact your chances of getting pregnant. So, and we all know, we all have friends who have gotten pregnant at higher weights and it's not fair. And we all sit there and we completely understand it's not fair, but unfortunately it is very real. So if you have had, if you're like, everything else is the same, but the only thing's different is my weight and that shouldn't make a difference because so-and-so had no problems. Unfortunately, that's not necessarily the way it works. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes secondary infertility, the frustration factor is, is the worst thing about it because the, the biology, the techniques, the medicine is, is remarkably similar in most cases. We're still going to run the same tests. We're still going to cross-check everything, you know, make sure that it's good. But now you have a little person at home and you feel just as much pressure of the biological clock. You're like, well, I really want little Johnny, little Susie, little whomever to have a sibling. And, or I really don't want to be 45 or you know 50 or whatever when we are raising this newborn and um, so you're feeling the impact of your own age the age of your child and so it really I think is a lot more frustrating than primary infertility in many respects because the the platitude of oh be grateful you have one at home does not apply when you really want a second or a third or whatever child you're on. And Carrie, you were talking about age. You know, the other factor with age is not just the age of the egg, but just as your whole body ages, you know, much more likely to find fibroids, which are benign growths in the uterus that can have an impact, more likely to just find other cysts in the ovaries that can cause issues as well. And so, and more likely to get endometriosis. So age sort of has a compounding problem with it in that it's not just the age of the ovary, which that's important too, but other factors go along with it. And your partner's older too. He has all those potential things that can happen to his sperm as well as he gets older. So um, the younger you are, the more time we have to work through those issues. Just just to touch a little bit on the age, especially for somebody who may have this maybe their first episode to be listening to us. I have a patient that went, came with me and we got helped get her pregnant at 36, 37, we went through an IVF cycle, had a beautiful baby. She didn't have remaining embryos. And now she's here 
with me at 42. And my optimism is not quite as robust as it was five years ago. Why am I looking at this with a different set of eyes than I did her her first go around? Yeah, age matters. And those those eggs are the same age that she is. And you know, I tell my patients, your eggs are stored with two sets of chromosomes. And when you get that trigger to ovulate, all of a sudden, in your patient's case, that egg has to wake up after 42 years and divide in two. And that process just doesn't work that great. And we know from IVF data that you know, even in, if you're 35, about 50% of the eggs that you produce are genetically abnormal. When you get closer to 37, it's maybe 60 to 70% that are abnormal. When you get to 40, it's about 90%. And then over 42, it's kind of anybody's, or over 40, it's anybody's guess as to how many are going to be normal. So you just don't have a lot of opportunities to get pregnant because the eggs that you're producing are genetically abnormal in, in many cases. When you look at the statistics across the country, so this is every single clinic that's out there, um, pretty much everybody is reporting the same sad statistics. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, they're almost unbelievable, but they're they're really bad. But that's yeah, just they're, reproduction. they're awful. I mean, it's easily most most clinics um, report percentages, but once you hit a specific number, when you're below that, it's no longer percentages. It's just you know X people out of ten or twenty or however many got pregnant, and and it's it's typically extraordinarily no, low numbers. And if you see higher numbers. Um, you need to really stop and, and question why, because the biology is there regardless of what clinic you're going to and how in shape you are and how beautiful you are. I see this in my Vegas patients a lot. And how well you eat. And how well you eat. <laughs> like these women are gorgeous and they are fit and they pay just beautiful, att- from a physician's view, beautiful attention to their nutrition and their ovaries don't care about any of that. Like it's better than if you aren't or a smoker or a drinker or really heavy, but still. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's better, but it still can't beat the basic biology that's going on. And so I just had somebody ask me, you know, like, oh, well, I, I looked at the statistics and they're all awful except for this one place. And I'm like, well, you need to really look at that with a critical eye because none of us know how to change the biology in really a... a effective way. You can screen out people so that you only are taking the best possible patients. Um, I know a lot of us don't have screening criteria where we'll say, oh, we're not going to help you. You're not ideal. So if you could just move along. But it's but there. Re- there really are clinics. I mean, for our listeners, there really are clinics out there that do do that. We don't do that in our particular mm-hmm. clinics, right? But there, there are clinics that cherry pick their patients, and I mean, quite honestly, I'd rather give everybody a chance because like exactly. I said earlier, you never know. Mir- yeah. miracles do happen. And and I'm happy to try for a miracle as long as you understand the risks of that and the bit of potential benefits of it. But if something seems too real to be true, it might be. It probably. Well, and I, what I would say is, is one way that that could happen is if somebody looked and, you know, if you, like Carrie said, if you cherry pick the patients, meaning say you put everybody through IVF that's over 40, uh, some of those people are going to have genetically normal embryos. And if they do, and you transfer that embryo, the results are very good. So if you're just looking at women who have a genetically normal embryo over 40, that's a much different group than mm-hmm. a woman who just goes through IVF and doesn't know what, what her embryos are going to be genetically. Mm-hmm. So that's where you could sort of mistakenly think, oh, well, they have a great success rate. Well, they may, but anybody would have a great success rate if their um, patients had genetically normal embryos to transfer or should anyway. 
I also think with secondary infertility, you've got a little bit higher chance of certain types of uterine abnormalities. So once you've had a baby, you are more likely to have needed you know, a DNC done that's an emergency to clean out the uterus because mm-hmm. let's say some of that placenta just absolutely refused to come out or you got an infection after you delivered or something like that. And whenever mm-hmm. you instrument the uterus, do any kind of surgical procedure on it, when there is any possibility of an infection, <laughs> which is a bit higher after you have a small human being come out of there, there is a higher likelihood of having scar tissue in there. And so this is one thing that I see that's a lot different in our secondary infertility folks than our primary infertility folks, because you've already had an occupant in that uterus and there has been a higher opportunity for trouble. And so whenever I have someone who comes in who's secondary infertility, I start to think a little bit more like, was there any possibility that anything happened after that first pregnancy that was the first child cementing their status as the only child who gets all of mom and dad's attention and are going to get all of the benefits. And they just made things a little bit more difficult for the next kid to come along to usurp their their throne. And, and age, we think, doesn't necessarily affect men quite in the same way it does women and as far as their sperm. But when you're sort of thinking about outside the box, I was sort of thinking for men outside the box, the thing to think about with them is, you know, all these commercials are on TV about, you know, how obtain your virility, you know, become the young person that you used to be, just take these testosterone supplements or these injections. And so a lot of men... It's been the best and the worst thing for fertility ever. (laughs) (laughs) Depending on which side of the coin it is. Exactly. the problem is men really think that if they take these injections, it's going to make them more virile. Plus, they sort of assume it'll help their fertility, and it does exactly the opposite. It lowers their sperm count, and many times they completely don't have any sperm at all and may not even have told their wives that they're taking testosterone. And so that's one of the questions we all think about when a guy comes in and he has no sperm at all. The first question we all ask is, are you taking testosterone? Because mm-hmm. sometimes we get surprises and the wife gets surprises. <laughs> And we check the hormone levels too, because even when the answer is, oh no, and you look at the level and you're like, your testosterone's 800. That's amazing. <laughs> and, you, and your FSH and your LH are completely really undetectable. Low. <laughs> yeah, like the, the thought that runs through my mind is, sir, now, sir, come on. Yes. Like, tell, me, tell me the truth here, because it's going to be a lot more efficient for both of us if I know, because I can go straight for what, what I need to the do. Issue to is- change things and like at the very least start some HCG with the testosterone. Don't just take the straight (laughs) testosterone. Give me, give me a little something to work with here. That's right. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, on that note, any final thoughts or words of advice for our patients and listeners who are, who are struggling with secondary infertility? I mean, as a general rule, I feel a lot more optimistic when I see a couple that have had a baby together because, you know, you know, the sperm work, you know, the egg work, you know, it can implant the uterus. And I am more optimistic. And I I think our listeners should be too. It may be that we just need to, maybe they're just a little bit subfertile and we need to just change that a little bit and increase their odds by putting on fairly low powered medicines. So I feel a lot more optimistic when I see secondary infertility patients. How about you, Carrie? Yeah, me too. And I would say find kind of try and find the balance as much as you can between the it's okay for me to want a second child, even though I've got a first one, as well as the balance of don't let yourself miss out on all the things that the first kid's going through in your attempt to get the second one. Because and that is a fine balance. It's one of the crappier balances of parenthood of how do I how do I enjoy this first kid that I love just as much as I'm gonna love the second kid and not 
you know, not miss out get on get lost in that, not get lost in the ability yeah. journey. Like that one's a Good tough point. One. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just like to say that, you know, we've, we've talked about kind of the emotional aspect and just putting some data behind it, but there, there actually are studies that show that struggling with secondary infertility is just as emotionally taxing Mm -hmm. as primary infertility is um, for whatever the reason is. And so know that what you're feeling is real and we're here for you and you know, if you're out there and you haven't gone to see a doctor because you're like, oh, it happened no problem the first time, it should eventually mm-hmm. happen. If you know you've been trying six months to a year and it hasn't happened, come see, go see somebody, get help, at least get a workup. I mean, at least that way you can be like, oh, well, maybe you know, if you've only been trying six months or so or just over a year and you know, you have a completely normal workup and you're like, oh, maybe we want to try another six months or so, that's great, but maybe we might find something that we're like, huh, maybe we need to do some interventions and, and do, do some little tweaks to help improve your chances. So there, there is help out there. And so definitely um, don't get frustrated because we're here for you. All right. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, to our audience, thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. You can also visit us on fertilitydocsuncensored.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All the questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. The more embarrassing, the better. We also love episode ideas. So let us know what you're thinking and what you want to hear. And we'll be back to talk to you soon. Bye. Bye, everyone.